Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hi everyone, great to be here. I'm Michael, lead pastor here at Salt. Uh, It's great to be here tonight and I want to begin by talking to you about power and powerful people. Uh, now, what's power about? What's, what are powerful people about? It's often about influence, isn't it? About how much money you have, the position you have, your ability to make people do certain things uh, to enact change. Now, who do you think is the most powerful person in the world? Forbes have a rich list. They also have the most powerful people in the world list. Who do you think is at the top of that list? It's not someone in this room. (laughs) President of China, uh, Xi Jinping. The nation is 1.4 billion people. Uh, Massive nation. Uh, A lot of people, wow, what's he going to do? What's he going to decide with this nation, with the world as a world leader? Uh, Number two is the president of Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin. Number three is Donald Trump. (laughs) He's not even president anymore, but he's the third most powerful person in the world, according to Forbes. Maybe he'll become the president again. I think it's next year. Um, Angela Merkel is the president of Germany. She's number four. Jeff Bezos is the American business magnate. He founded Amazon, incredibly wealthy guy. He's, He's at number five. Number six is Pope Francis, uh, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, sixth most powerful person in the world. Number seven, and I'll leave it here, is Bill Gates, the tech giant. Now, I tried to look for an Aussie on the list. How long do you have to get down the list before you get to an Aussie? Is Rupert Murdoch an Aussie? I think he's actually an American citizen. He's at number 39. Now, I raise power because I want, to, I want you to see something extraordinarily powerful tonight. I want, I want you to see something that's actually the most powerful thing in all of the world from tonight's passage. Okay, so that's where we're heading. Um, open up your Bibles, Acts chapter 19. Um, so if you've just joined us, we're in our series, we've called it Unstoppable, the book of Acts, a book in the New Testament. Uh, the history told by Luke the doctor of the message of Jesus going out from Jerusalem after Jesus' death and resurrection to the ends of the earth. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And Paul is on his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, and Luke is tracking his journey. And if you remember two weeks ago, where were we? We were in, we were in Corinth, in Greece. We've now moved, Paul's now moved to Ephesus in Asia Minor. Let me show you the map uh, and and we'll continue our tour of Europe. Um, You don't don't need to go go to Europe, just come read Acts, come here on Sunday night, you'll get a tour. Um, He started off in Antioch, Jerusalem's down the bottom right-hand corner. He moves through Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. He then moves across uh, to places like Berea, down to Athens, Corinth, that's modern Greece, and now he's back over in Ephesus, Uh, back in Asia Minor, which is modern-day 
Turkey. Now, Ephesus is uh, an interesting place. Um, If Corinth was the major city of Greece, Ephesus is the major city of Asia Minor. Uh, It's a very strategic place. Uh, If every ship had to pass through Corinth, then every road passes through Ephesus. That's the kind of place it is. Uh, And what does Paul do? Paul does pretty much exactly what he did in Corinth here in Ephesus. So look at it with me. It's it's like an action replay. Uh, Verses, have a look at verses 8 to 10. Uh, It's it's the simple formula. He enters the, the Jewish synagogue, step one. What is he doing there? He's speaking boldly. He's arguing. He's persuading people on the kingdom of God. What's his message? Uh, Jesus is the risen king. Uh, His kingdom is full of people now who who have allegiance to him, who trust him as king. And he does that for three whole months. And then, uh, as expected, uh, as happened in Corinth, some people believe, but some people refuse to believe. In fact, some people are so obstinate, he says here, uh, they malign Christianity and he has to move on. And where does he move on to? Well, last, last time in Corinth, remember he moved next door to the synagogue leader's house. This time he moves to, uh, we, he moves with the disciples to a lecture hall. The lecture hall of Tyrannus uh, is free, it's at least a certain part of the day. And there he continues discussions for two years. So lots of people are obviously coming and going. It's like a massive life series that goes on for two years. Uh, that's what we're doing here at, at Salt Life Series. Come and explore Jesus, ask questions. Can you see Paul? What Paul's trying to do? Let me help you grapple with Jesus, who he is. Get clear on him. Ask questions. Push back. Let's keep talking, uh, because I want you to trust him. I want you to become a disciple of him. And so, picture Paul's workday for a moment. He remember he's a tent maker. Um, so from early in the morning, probably till midday, he's making tents. And then in the afternoon, when the lecture hall's free, all the way to the evening, there he is arguing, persuading people, Jesus is the Messiah. And he does that every day for two years. And it has, look at verse 10, it has an extraordinary impact. Uh, check this out for an outcome. Verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul knows that he doesn't have control on who will believe and who won't, but imagine that as an outcome. Every single person in the city of Wollongong, every single person in the region of the Illawarra, every single person, imagine, in the region, the state of New South Wales, heard the good news of Jesus and I let God do his work in people. Some, refu- some refused, some came to faith. And you can, it, it's a gospel explosion, isn't it? You can just imagine. Some people would have come to faith, they've come into Ephesus, they've heard the good news of Jesus, they've gone out from Ephesus, they've planted new churches. Others have refused, hostility starting to rise. That's what's, that's what's happening in Ephesus. But notice too, something else extraordinary is happening here. Look at verse 11. Extraordinary miracles uh, took place through Paul. Even the handkerchiefs and the work aprons of Paul, when touched, healed the sick 
and drove out evil spirits. That, that is extraordinary, isn't it? That is, that is crazy kind of stuff, isn't it? It's, it's, I think it's hard enough for us, most of us at least, to get our heads around miracles. Here is something that's next level. Um, the apron, the handkerchief of Paul is touched because it's had connection with him. People are healed uh, by touching that handkerchief. Uh, evil spirits are driven out. It's hard to think, where else in the Bible do you see that kind of thing? Uh, it doesn't happen with the, the, other, the other apostles. It doesn't even happen with Jesus, does it? I reckon I could come up with one other time when, you, when, when Jesus, uh, a woman touches the clothes of Jesus and she's healed of bleeding. But this, this, is, this is extraordinary, isn't it? This really is next level. What, what, what's going on here for Paul in Ephesus? People have had two responses to this. Some have, some have said, firstly, well, this is clearly make-believe. This is clearly exaggeration. I don't think that's the way to go. I think we've seen enough of the historical reliability of Luke's account here in Acts to go, no, that's, that's not what's happening. There's no reason to doubt this is what actually happened. But then others have said, and they're usually tele-evangelists on TV in early hours of the morning, that actually what you're seeing here is normal Christian ministry. Uh, that this is what you should expect if you're doing Christian ministry to this day. And then they'll go on to heal migraines and bad backs. And it's actually quite sad, isn't it? Some, I, don't, I can't speak for all of those ministries. But for some of them, uh, they've been exposed for lies and deception. Um, uh, yeah, it's been false healings. Ironically, it's been the work of the devil, deception. Um, and it severely misunderstands the power of evil. It also severely misunderstands the power that comes from Jesus and the gospel. And you think, if, you, if we just read our Bibles a little bit more carefully, we'd see actually there's, there's clues here that, that show us that this is unique to Paul and I think unique to Ephesus. Now the first thing, the first clue I reckon you get is, did you notice how Luke describes these miracles? He says in verse 11, they're extraordinary miracles. You almost think, What's, what's with that extra word? A miracle is something extraordinary, isn't it? A miracle already is exceptional, already is out of the ordinary, already is unique. Here is something that is extraordinarily unique, extraordinarily extraordinary. Uh, here is an exceptionally unique, exceptional event, if you like. Uh, Luke's really going to pains to point it out. Why is that the case? And why is Paul doing it? Why is God doing it through Paul? Well, in one sense, all the miracles of the apostles were God's way of affirming the legitimacy of their ministry. In other words, signs and wonders accompanied true apostles, those who were sent by Jesus, who witnessed his life and resurrection, those who persevered in teaching the gospel. Uh, and perform signs and wonders, they are the real, genuine apostles sent by Jesus. Uh, that's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Have a look at this uh, verse, not coming up. Uh, let me read it for you. There it is. Um, I persevered, Paul says, in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. What are they? Well, it includes signs, wonders and miracles. 
And why do you think it is that this was particularly important for Paul? Why do you think it's particularly important for Paul to be demonstrating signs and wonders and miracles? It's because he wasn't part of the original 12. He was the one who was seen as the illegitimate apostle, the the Johnny-come-lately. He wasn't part of the original 12. And so here are the signs and wonders that demonstrate that I am a true uh, apostle, which tells us there's no expectation that these kinds of miracles will happen today. They were for that purpose, to show Paul as genuine. Now, of course, God can do whatever he wants, uh, but that is different to God promising that he'll do this. Uh, he hasn't promised that he repeat it. And it's interesting, isn't it? When Paul and the apostles pass on the ministry of the gospel to the next generation, so to the Titus, to Titus's and the Timothy's, and we'll look at Titus a little bit later this year, there's no mention of the ministry of miracles or signs and wonders. Uh, what does Paul say to Timothy and Titus, he says, teach the gospel faithfully and watch your life. They're the two things that will mark your ministry as successful and authentic. Now, of course, none of that means God is less powerful today. In fact, we're going to see something far more powerful than uh, healing the sick by handkerchiefs. But let me give you the second reason this is happening in Ephesus and not in Corinth. Uh, and not in other parts of the ancient world. It's the kind of place that Ephesus was. Now, I don't know whether you're familiar with Ephesus, but Ephesus um, was the city of the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana. Uh, the, The Romans knew her as Diana, the daughter of Zeus, and she was the goddess of fertility. And this is this is a reconstruction of her temple, a massive temple, Um, has anyone been to Athens and seen the Parthenon? Yeah, or fragments of, it's it's meant to be, uh, if if you picture it in all its glory, it was impressive. This temple is three times the size of uh, the Parthenon in Athens. It was the, the largest building in the ancient world. It's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And what does that all mean? There was a massive focus in Ephesus on the occult. There was a massive focus on magic, on pagan witchcraft, on pagan um, ritual and sacrifice. And so what's happening here, uh, what we're seeing is God working extraordinary miracles in the name of Jesus through Paul to say to the Ephesians, the gospel of Jesus is more powerful than anything that goes on in that temple. Uh, Jesus is more powerful than the magic of Artemis and more powerful than that temple that you live in the shadow of and that has created fear and has power over you. Jesus is more powerful. And that becomes so clear to the people of Ephesus that it actually leads to the next part of Luke's account here. Uh, And it's one of those ones... It's one of my favourites. It's, it's the Jews of Ephesus. And notice, they're going around driving out evil spirits and they see Paul doing miraculous things successfully and they try to copy him, don't they? Have a look in verse 14. Uh, seven sons of Sceva, 
a Jewish chief priest were doing this. Isn't that an awesome name? Um, Seven sons of Sceva. I reckon don't choose that name for your son, but choose it for your band that you get together, right? I reckon it's a great, great band name. Um, What does he try to do? He tries to remove an evil spirit. He gets the shock of his life when the spirit answers him. What does the spirit say? I won't won't try and do the voice of the spirit, the evil spirit, but Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? See how astounding. The spirit then jumps on him, overpowers him and gives him a beating such that he runs away naked and bleeding. It's hard to know whether, is this meant to be humorous or is this incredibly sad? There's no power there, isn't there? It's not a great result. What do, we, what do we make of that? Well, here's what we're to make of it. Jesus is not a magic formula. Uh, Jesus is not a magic word. The name of Jesus in itself is not powerful. What did Jesus say? Faith in Jesus is powerful. Faith in Jesus will move mountains. Real relationship with Jesus, that is incredibly powerful. But reducing Jesus to a lucky charm, that's not who he is. It reminds me of um, people who put pictures of Jesus up on their wall uh, and pictures of Jesus up on their wall to protect themselves. Um, when we bought our house on the Central Coast, uh, the previous owner, she was a lady, she, um, she lived on her own and uh, the front door was two glass doors so you could see into the hallway And she put a picture of Jesus in the hallway to protect her house. Uh, And when when we bought the house, um, she found out we were Christian and she assumed that we would want to keep that picture there. And actually, it was the first thing that I removed. Uh, uh, It's the same with uh, people who put crosses around their neck or the, the cross that hangs down from the rear view mirror of their car as if these things have power in themselves to protect you. Or, I don't know whether you noticed it um, in the World Cup, I didn't see enough of it, but footballers who kiss the cross or make a sign of the cross before they take the penalty because they think that's what God wants them to do, that's, that's how they'll... It's, it's a lucky charm, isn't it? It's like treating Jesus as a genie Um, to get what I want. It's powerless superstition is what it is. And that's what what was happening here. There's no power in it. This is what happens when you uh, treat Jesus this way. This is what happens when you don't know Jesus. You won't overcome evil. Evil will overcome you. And that's exactly what's happened here. But notice the response to all this is incredibly powerful. Notice the people of Ephesus saw this and realise, wow, the gospel really does have power over superstition. It frees us from superstition. Jesus really is more powerful than Artemis, the goddess of, of futility, of fertility. Have a look in verse 17. So look, at, look at the effect. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus... They were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. 
A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord grew, spread widely and grew in power. You get, the, you get the, the idea? It's like, look at what's happened. Wow. Massive impact, real power. Here we've actually come to real lives have been changed. Now, I want, to, I want to spend the rest of our time on two big things. First is, I reckon what we're seeing here is the power of the gospel over magic and the occult. Jesus' power over evil. That's the first one. Um, and it's kind of hard for us to get our heads around, isn't it? Because we live, we live in a very rational era. Uh, we live in a culture that's very materialistic. And I don't just mean we, we focus on material things and don't think there's anything else uh, beyond this life. I actually mean um, we only believe that reality is made up of what you can see and what you can touch. That there is no unseen spiritual reality. Uh, I think it's fair to say we live in a culture that's asleep to spiritual realities. Yeah? And so... We're, we're not living in a culture that's afraid of witches uh, or curses or spells or evil spirits. We don't feel, largely I don't think we feel oppressed by superstitions. Although it is interesting, isn't it? The more we move away from Christianity, um, the more superstition starts to grow. But why is that? Why is it that that's the world in which we live in? It's because our, our culture is so Christianised. Uh, it's because of the impact that the gospel has had. If you think about before the spread of the gospel, um, if you think about every culture on every continent before the spread of the gospel, it lived in fear of evil spirits. Uh, That they were very aware of the spiritual world, but it was a world that was dark and oppressive, a world they feared. And of course that expressed itself in a whole lot of ways, um, witchcraft, magic, uh, pagan rituals. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. So pagan Europe, um, Africa, South America, Asia, Aboriginal Australia. There's an awareness of, of, the, of the spiritual and then there's a deep fear of the spiritual. Now often, often that's superstitious. So it's, it's kind of that large scale fear of the dark kind of thing. And then sometimes it's profoundly real. It really is in touch with the demonic. It really is Satan at work. And what Christianity done, it's banished superstition. Uh, As you trace the the rise of faith in Jesus uh, across the world, you see the decline of superstition and fear... um, of, of, the, of the spiritual, uh, the decline of superstitious beliefs. And that's what the people of Ephesus here are experiencing, isn't it? They see very clearly, wow, Jesus really has forgiven our sins. That is massive. He really has conquered death. That is massive. But he's also king over evil. In him, I no longer need to fear evil. And it's... It's not because Satan isn't real, it's because he is real, but Jesus has conquered him. It's not because evil isn't real, we know evil is real, 
It's just that Jesus is stronger. Now, most of us have no idea how freeing that is because we don't come from that culture. We don't come from that world. At this point, I want to to tell you a fishing story. Um, Five years ago, our family were on uh, long service leave. We were uh, doing one of those laps around Australia. It was only the half lap in our camper trailer. Uh, And we got up to Darwin. We went across to the Gulf of Carpentaria. At the Gulf of Carpentaria, I thought, I want to catch a barramundi. I want to go on the fishing charter. So I paid my $150. Um, And when you pay $150, what do you want to see for that $150? (laughs) You want to see fish. And I wanted wanted that picture moment of the barramundi. Um, Even better, let's make a cast of it. Let's put it in the pool room. Let's go the whole hog. Out there for the first half an hour and nobody's getting a bite. There's two other dads on the on the trip. There's the the ship the ship. It's not that big. <laughs> Boat captain. An hour goes by and I'm like, does this guy know how to fish? No one's catching anything. I've paid $150 for this. Um another half an hour goes by. Meanwhile, there's a great conversation going on in the boat about what we do for work and they ask me I'm okay you're a pastor what's your church like and then we the whole conversation's about Jesus and the gospel it's fantastic um but there's still no fish uh anyway the 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 captain of the ship of the boat said um he's really positive about Christianity really positive about what we're doing as a church and then I told him that oh part of our trip we went into Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory uh, and we visited some missionaries who've just started there, who we're supporting, uh, who've gone there to strengthen the Indigenous community there uh, and their church and to reach out with the Gospel of Jesus. And you just saw his face drop and say to me, there's something I cannot agree with. You shouldn't be doing that. And see, what he'd grossly misunderstood was, in Indigenous culture, there is much spiritual oppression. There is much fear of the spiritual realm. There is much oppression in their belief system. And when people hear of the freedom that comes in Jesus, it is amazing. It is life-transforming as they realise, I no longer need to fear evil and evil spirits. Now, of course, missionaries, white missionaries, have done lots of things that we regret uh, for 200 years in, across Indigenous culture. But there is something that is profoundly good to reach out in this way. And I knew, I knew it was true. And, and when he realised that, he went, oh, I've never thought about it that way. I... He was just like, I just assumed they were like us. No, they're not. Uh, that's their culture. That's what happens when you haven't heard the good news of Jesus and his conquering of evil. You live in a culture of fear and you live in a culture of oppression. I knew it was true, but I really wanted to hear it from um, an Indigenous person. And so I, I thought, I prayed, I thought, Let, I'd love to, Lord, I'd love to meet someone who could explain this to me. And so later on in the trip, we went off to Cairns 
um, and we're at, we're, it just happened to be at a markets there and a guy was, uh, an indigenous man was selling art, he was his own art, he's quite well known in, in Cairns and I, I just had this in, thought I'll, I'll strike up a conversation with him, how, I found out he was Christian and how do you move from talking about art to spiritual oppression? <laughs> it's quite difficult but got talking with him and uh, is this right? And he said, absolutely it is right. We need to hear the gospel of Jesus. We desperately need to hear the gospel of Jesus. He was a Christian himself. But he knew that that people in his tribe, in his community, rejoiced because they were released from the fear of spiritual oppression. And it's like the Ephesians here, they no longer need to fear the curses, the spells, they are free. Now, uh, we don't live in that world, right? We don't live in that world of evil spirits, of curses, of magic. That's not part of our world. Or is it? Let's have a think about that for a moment. Because there is a spiritual world, isn't there? Uh, The Bible's really clear, Satan is real, Evil spirits are real, demonic forces are real. Uh, And if you go looking for them, you'll find them. Uh, A friend of mine explained it to me like this, it's a bit like the criminal underworld or the drug world. If you want to find it, you'll find it. It operates in your city, it operates in your suburb, it probably operates in your street. And if you want to find it, you'll find it. In fact, sometimes you don't need to look very hard, do you? Sadly... It's there in front of you and it will harm you. And so uh, what are some of the expressions? You know, the the Ouija boards, the speaking to the dead, the seances, the wicker festivals, the horoscopes, the crystals, they're all remnants uh, of a dark spiritual world of the occult. Um, Don't mess with them. They are real and they are dangerous. I'm not talking about Harry Potter or Narnia. That's the world of fantasy, which I think can be enjoyed. But here is something that is far more, far darker, far, far more real and sinister. And of course, within that, there's a whole lot of phony as well, isn't there? There's a whole lot of stuff that's fake. There's a whole lot of people who prey on people who want to delve into that and um, take their money. But the devil is real and he does deceive. We're not to be afraid of him. He has no power over us in Christ. That's that side of the spiritual world. And then there's a whole other side, isn't there? And the whole other side is so much more subtle. Um, what do you think is the greatest trick Satan has pulled in our culture? Isn't it that Satan doesn't really exist? Isn't it that he's actually, let's just switch off people's awareness of the spiritual let's just put people asleep to spiritual realities and I reckon it can happen to us even as Christians so I want to say to you stand firm in Jesus be confident in him don't be afraid of evil don't be afraid of Satan with great courage fight sin live for Jesus every day And at the same time, be aware, 1 Peter, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is real. 
but he's a toothless tiger. He's much more intimidating than he actually is. He, in fact, he's, he doesn't have a bite. He just roars. If you're in Christ, you are safe. But Satan will tempt you. Uh, what did Jesus say? He is the father of all lies. He will um, come at you with all kinds of lies. Resist him, 1 Peter says, and stand firm. And be aware of what's going on. I reckon, as I said, I reckon we're often naive to this. What's happening when Christian brothers and sisters don't get along and there's division in church? That's the devil trying to get a foothold. What's happening when I'm stingy with my money and time towards the kingdom of God? And what's happening when I just can't be bothered to encourage my brothers and sisters at church or gather with them at small group or I've given up on praying or I've stopped reading my Bible? That's Satan having a go. He won't win because you're in Jesus. You can resist him, but do realise he's having a go. Do realise that reality. And what, what he would love more than anything else is just for you to turn down the seriousness of following Jesus. He would love you to be quiet about Jesus. He doesn't want you to be on fire for Jesus. He wants you to be just lukewarm. Ultimately, he wants you to deny Jesus. And you might have noticed this is going on even if you're uh, not yet a Christian and you're still trying to work out, will I follow Jesus? This tussle, is Jesus real? Is it worth it? Is all part of the spiritual reality. So ask God to help you. Ask God to show you that Jesus is true, that you might follow him, trust him, say sorry to him, live for him, realise what he's done for you. That's the first big one, Jesus' power over evil, magic and the occult. But the second big thing, I've called it costly repentance. Have a look at verse 18. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. See what happened? They realized magic is wrong, the occult is wrong. They openly confess it and then they renounce it. They turn their backs on evil and what do they do? They burn the scrolls, they burn the books of spells which are incredibly valuable. Uh, Ephesus was famous for these. They're actually worth 50,000 drachmas, that's equivalent of seven to eight million dollars. That's what repentance looks like. That's what it looks like when you turn to Jesus, you realise he is king he is good, I want to live for him. Now I need to, whatever the cost, turn my back on sin. I need to throw off everything that's unhelpful. I need to put to death sin. Now as we, as we finish up, I, I don't imagine many of us have books or spells to burn. Um, but when we, become, when we became followers of Jesus, and as we grow as disciples of Jesus under God's word, our repentance should show itself as obvious as what has happened here in Ephesus. Because that's what the gospel does. It changes people. It transforms people. And if there's no change, then 
you're not a disciple of Jesus. You haven't yet realised Jesus is king and I need to turn to him. When I was at Bible college, uh, every year we had a short-term mission. Uh, it got to the third year, they're all missions in Sydney, it got to the third year and we did mission in Malaysia. And in Malaysia, we visited the church there, were a part of what they were doing and seeing, seeing the mission they're involved in. At the back of their church property, they had an incinerator. And that incinerator was for people who'd become Christian to burn their idols. Now, can you imagine the impact that would have had for their friends, for their community? We're so turning our back on our previous life. We're so done with idols. We're going to publicly burn them in the incinerator. And so let me ask you tonight, what is it that you had to throw on the fire when you became a Christian? Uh, or what is it that you need to throw on the fire, uh, even tonight? There's, there's some really obvious things uh, for some of us, isn't it? Some of us, uh, it's things like alcohol, uh, how, how very helpful it is as we turn our, our back on drunkenness that we actually literally smash the very bottles that so gripped us. Or is it, is it, is it the drug habit? Or is it pornography? If you're struggling with porn, is it... What, what drastic measure do you need to put in place to repent of pornography? How about the smashing of your computer? Not just putting a filter on it, but smashing it. There is costly repentance, isn't it? Uh, it's funny, isn't it? As we think about our brothers and sisters in Malaysia who had these idols and they burn them... Uh, it's, it's costly, it's dramatic, isn't it? They didn't just pick up their idol and go, well, let's just put it on the mantelpiece or let's put it in the, in the drawer. Just, I might want to pull it out. They actually burnt it. They smashed it. Some things are more subtle, aren't they? Like some, some things are very ex- acceptable, like greed or covetedness. Um, some of us need to cut cards up credit cards or debit cards. We need to actually throw money on the fire. I think it was, uh, I was reminded of, as I was thinking about this this week, how helpful our new home campaign as we raise money for a, for a new uh, site for SALT. That's greatly helpful for the future of SALT and growth of SALT. But how helpful it was for all of us as we thought about our attitude towards money and the potential idol it can become. Uh, as you give money away, that'll be used in very helpful ways. But it's actually really good for us, isn't it? How do you combat the idol of money? It's generosity. Let me ask you, what, what change did people see in you when you became a Christian? Did they actually see you smashing idols? Or did they actually just see you just added religion on top of what you're already doing and and even now as you've become a christian and you've journeyed on the christian life for a while what is it that you still need to smash and is your repentance obvious talked a lot tonight about power 
This is real power, isn't it? This is real change that comes from Jesus. It was very powerful in Ephesus. See, what, what happened there at the end of that, that part there? As they burnt millions of dollars of books, the city took notice, didn't they? What is going on in the church of Ephesus that sprung up? Why would you burn those books? Who is Jesus that he calls them? Their lives have been radically changed. Look at what they've given up. I must check out Jesus. It had a massive impact on the city. It's no wonder Luke finishes by saying in verse 20, In this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Can you imagine that happening in the city of Wollongong? The people look at, look at Salt Church and go, wow, what is going on there? Lives are being transformed. Lives are being changed. Massive repentance. Obvious smashing of idols. Why are you doing that? Who is Jesus? Let's pray.